0: And so we're going to be talking about the Trail of Manuscripts, and um, there's basically four trails, but um, for the most part, there's really only two that are primarily looked at. Um, There's the um, Byzantine Trail, also called the Textus Receptus, the Received Text. There's um, the um, Alexandrian Text, also called the Critical Text, and um, those are the two primary ones. There's also um, the the western text, um, but it's kind of considered to kind of be kind of sloppy, and then there's the Cessusurian text family, manuscript family, and it's kind of a combination of the Alexandrian and the western um, text. But so there's um, Trewa manuscripts, and so you kind of go to the bookstore, Christian bookstore, and there's multitudes of Bible versions available. You know, you could um, get one for, uh, you know, every, everyone in your family. You know, have, have to have a whole different version, and it says things that are different. And um, how is a Christian to really understand, to know which Bibles are accurate, which ones are reliable? And, you know, today and in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about um, several of that. But some things to investigate would be the spiritual condition of the translators. You know, if it's an ungodly man, a man that doesn't even believe the Bible to be God's Word, they may be an expert at doing translation work, but is that really a Bible you would really want to trust? Someone that doesn't even believe it's the Word of God? Probably not. I wouldn't think so. Another thing you would want to look at is the abilities and the skills of the translators. Do they actually know what they're doing? You probably don't want um, me and Daniel trying to translate the Bible for you. You you, um, want want people that really know what they are doing. The method of translation um, is different with different Bible versions. Um, Some use a formal equivalency. This is with the idea of translating from the Hebrew, Greek to English with as much word for word as possible. That is to be a literal translation. Now, with it being translated into a language, you know what? there's, there's some working, otherwise we would be reading the Bible backwards. And you know what, it wouldn't make sense in our language. So it's translated word for word, but as it fits. The language. That would be a formal um, equivalency. There's also the dynamic equivalency, and that's more of the idea of translating the thoughts and uh, translating the ideas, um, what the translator thinks the offer intended to mean, and then they translate their thoughts. It's basically a commentary instead of actually a translation. Um, one thing you want to look at is the manuscript evidence. You know, what has the church historically received? You know, are there some manuscripts that were rejected by the early church? Um, Because you think about, okay, Polycarp, or some of the early Christians that were even disciples of the apostles. Like, what what did they quote from? What did they use? Um, What are the readings of the oldest manuscripts? You know, what, what, what's, what's older? You know what the general theory is? The older we could get it's probably going to be closer um, to match the original. Okay? And then, what are the readings of the majority of the manuscripts? Is it just one or two manuscripts that have a particular reading? Um, for example, okay, 1 Timothy 3.16... You know what? A couple of manuscripts say He was manifest in the flesh. But a majority of them say God was manifest in the flesh. So do you go with the majority witnesses? Or do you go with a minority? But then where it gets interesting, what if the majority ends up ...being different than what the oldest says. And that's where really kind of this debate um, gets. Some favor the majority, some favor the older. And um, but we're, we're going to get into, like, sometimes there's something even older... ...than the oldest version they would ha- that one would have. There would be um, quotes from early church leaders. There would be other versions in other languages... So it gets interesting, you know There's good Christians on both sides um, of the issue. Um, you know One's not a, um, necessarily a heretic because they're using another translation. but I'm going to show you um, scripturally and historically um, why we use um, the King James Version in our church, and um, we'll get begin into it. The Bible says in Psalms 12:6 to7, "The words of the Lord are pure words." as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Heard an excellent message on this a couple of weeks ago when we had our um, guest speaker um, with us, Paul Swanky. But we see God's Word is pure words. And you know it's As silver purified seven times, like silver in its most pure state. And that we see that the Lord would preserve them from this generation forever. And so we see the extent of preservation is the words. The agent of preser- for preservation is thou, speaking of God. The period of preservation is forever. And so then when we look at the preservation of the Old Testament, the Old Testament was. Committed primary to the Jews. Romans three one says, "What advantage didn't have the Jew, or what pro, um, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of um, God, that God committed um, the Old Testament to um, the Jews to be writing." Um, The scriptures and um, keep them. Now, there's less controversy over the Old Testament Hebrew text than the New Testament Greek text. And um, as there was much attention to detail, you know, we see the Talmudists, those that would read the Talmud, which would be a commentary on the Torah, on the first five books of the Bible. You know what? They would make sure they were copying the words of God very accurately. And then the Masoretes, from 500 A.D. to 1,000 A.D. really um, kept intact um, the Scriptures, making sure it was pure, that it was not altered, it wasn't changed. And Jewish scholars whose life's work involved the transmission of the pure Old Testament text, otherwise known as the Hebrew Masoretic text. Until 1947, the Old Testament earliest... Known as Sistine manuscript, dated 895 A.D. You know what was found in 1947? What? Anybody? Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, a boy was just going in this cave and then found all these scrolls. And um, so, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947, dated um, fr- from. Um, some say some may be the third century, but it's most commonly thought that the second century, around 150 BC, um, from there to the first century um, A.D. So this predates by around a thousand years, what used to be the oldest known manuscripts of the Bible. Um, and, and so then they end up finding out, too, that they did see scrolls are nearly identical to the Hebrew Masoretic text. So then it was like, people write, like, wow, there is accuracy. You know, people will sometimes look at um, old book, books, you know, by Homer, um, different philosophers, and many times they only have a few manuscripts. And they'll say, you know what, we think we have it accurate to the original." Well, there's thousands of manuscripts for the Bible, and many skeptics will say, we still can't know if it's accurate. It's pretty hypocritical in thinking. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they represented the the entire Old Testament, except for they didn't find a copy of the book of Esther in there. Um, in the story of the, Bi- of the Bible, in, written in 1936, um, the author said, Copies intended for use in the synagogue were written according to precise rules, and with the most minute attention to accuracy, any copy which was found faulty or damaged was to be destroyed. When a new copy had been made, and its accuracy tested, the old manuscript especially if it had been in any way damaged, was destroyed or consigned to a lumber cupboard. This practice would account for the disappearance of many early manuscripts, but it's also a guarantee of the accuracy of those that survive. Some of the rules that the Maserettes, um would have in, in the, in the copying the word. No word or letter could be written from memory. The scribe must have an authentic copy before him. Scribes must read and pronounce aloud each word before writing it. You know, not just imagine in your head, but pronounce it out loud. The scribe must wash his whole body before writing the name of God, before writing the name Jehovah. They would go and take a bath before writing it down. Every word and every letter was counted. And if a letter were omitted, an extra letter inserted, or if one letter touched another, the manuscript was condemned and destroyed. One mistake condemned the entire sheet. You know, all of us, you know, we write a report, you know, it, we'll have a little mistake. And, you know, we think back then, they didn't have the autocorrect feature, Um, On their computers and (laughs) stuff, if they had any. Three mistakes on any page condemn the entire manuscript. They're saying it's okay, this scribe was pretty careless. We do not want there to be any mistakes in the finished product. Now, with the preservation of the New Testament, scriptures were copied, they were circulated between um, the churches. Um, parchment and vellum was used before, but usually only by the super wealthy. It was usually written rather on papyrus, um, common from 2100 BC to 800 AD. Um, by 800 AD, parchment and vellum then was a little bit more affordable and became more of the standard um, that would use. And that's a picture of the plant that papyrus would often uh, would come from. Paper started to become popular around 1000 AD. And so, you know, papyrus, with much use, it would disintegrate. Whereas with parchment and vellum, calf skins, it would last longer. It would endure. An important factor in the preservation of the Greek New Testament was during the era of the Byzantine Empire was kept the, the, the Greek manuscripts from the 5th to the 15th centuries. And um, this is um, why the Greek manuscripts of this era are often called the Byzantine texts or traditional texts. Other descriptions used are the received texts or the textus receptus. And you know, here we have the Byzantine Empire. You see um, Antioch, Jerusalem, um, Turkey... Um, Italy, Rome, we see all these different places. We see um, through history that the early Christians, the Waldenses in Europe, the Albigensies, southern France, used the traditional text as their Bible. The Anabaptists use this traditional text. And you know, the, the, the manuscripts basically come come from, stem, is rooted from Antioch of Syria and Asia Minor as a whole. And this is often, um, this philosophy, this thought pattern was the Antiochian school of theology. In the Bible, does anybody remember anything that's significant about the place Antioch? Yes, there'd be a lot of things you could go to. soon. We won't make you try, I guess. But in Acts 11, verse 25, we see, And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And this is where the Byzantine text, the um, traditional text, comes from. It's basically from the region where Antioch was located. And that's where they were called Christians first. So something to consider. They applied a literal approach to Bible interpretation. That they would read the Bible, and they would believe it literally, what it says. When the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, they believed it. They didn't try and make it figurative or... Um, metaphoric, except the times when the Bible is written that way. For example, in the Psalms, okay, the Bible would talk about how the wings of God are as a refuse. Okay, that's not taken literally. That's understood as being poetic in language. But when it's not like that, the Word of God, the Scriptures, this school of mind thought, thought took it as we are to accept the Bible literally. The majority of New Testament autographs, I mean the originals, recited with churches in this region. Commonly thought that Asia Minor held 12 books, possibly 18. That Greece held 6. Israel held 2, possibly 3. And now we're talking about the Greek now. We're not talking about the Hebrew. We're talking about the um, Greek. Erasmus in um, 1466, 1536, you know, we have Bible um, history display in the foyer. Um, feel free to take time to read that. following services. There's one about Erasmus. He was the Catholic that wanted reform within the church. He saw that there was corruption going on in the Roman Catholic Church, and he said, you know, we need to re- bring some reformation. You know, these things about paying indulgences to get your sins forgiven, that, that's not scriptural. And it's because he was able to look at the scriptures. And, um, and he was considered by many to be the greatest Renaissance scholar. Now, he tried to slowly reform the Catholic Church, never coming out of it. Martin Luther tried to urge him, you know, no, you know what, we need to deal with this. this is, we need to deal with these abuses. Erasmus was more trying to be a help, you know what, well, let's get the Bible in the common language. Luther was like, you know what, we're taking action now. And then he, he nailed his 95 theses in protest of the Catholic Church. We see um, Erasmus lectured at the University of Cambridge. One of his students was Willem Tyndale. And um, we'll be talking about Willem Tyndale more next week. Erasmus' greatest work was his Greek New Testament. Um, the preface of it said this, I would have these words translated into all languages so that not only Scots and Irishmen, but Turks and Saracens might read them. I wish that the farm worker might sing parts of them at the plow, that the weaver might hum them at the shuttle, and the traveler might beguile the weariness of the way by reciting them. And now this was very Revolutionary. Because the Roman Catholic Church, by and large, kept the Word of God away from the people. They said, only if you're a scholar and you know Latin are you allowed to understand the the Bible. They felt like the priests had the power to understand what the Bible said, but the, the common man did not. Erasmus was like, no, we want the Bible to be in the common man's language. <clears throat> he was asked by Martin Dorp of the University to not publish his Greek New Testament because it would show up serious errors in the Latin Vulgate, thus weakening the Catholic Church. They're like, don't, 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 don't publish this. And so what he did was he took manuscripts from the Byzantine, the traditional text, and then compiled it and, in may, and, and made it in, in, on a single sheet. So he would put them together, uh, and, and he's had influence on all these Bibles, more than these Bibles um, that are on here. But um, he had great influence. Stephanus, a royal printer in Paris. He published his Greek New Testament, used part of Erasmus, and um, another um, Greek manuscript, along with 15 more Byzantine manuscripts. He had more manuscripts available than Erasmus had. And due to strong Catholic opposition, Stephanus left Paris in 1550 for Geneva where he became a Protestant. And so then he had his Greek New Testament published. He compiled the Greek manuscripts and then had it printed. Beza um, was um, a fellow reformer um, with John Calvin. He um, produced 10 editions of the Greek text, all of which followed Stephanus and Erasmus very closely. Um, he also used the Syriac Bible, a Latin translation of the Arabic Bible, and um, other um, manuscripts um, for, um, that supported the Greek text. The translators of the authorized King James Version used Stephanus third edition and basis edition of 1598, um, as well as Erasmus and other ones, and comparing some of the earlier English translations. Um, And other um, people putting together a Greek text. And then it is through them that the term textus receptus was coined. And the reason that was coined was, it was understood by the Christians that this was the received text. This is the text, the manuscripts, that the early Christians used. So you have the New Testament autographs, the originals, written from around 3095 AD. We don't have any copies of the originals. You know what, maybe one day one of them will show up. It'll be probably hard to know for sure it is the original, But the originals are lost. And so then there's Greek manuscripts, which are copies of the originals, But those predating the 9th century were lost. You know what, now they've ended up finding some of them. They, they've been found. But for a long time, until the 9th century, they, they found um, First John one dating about 125 to 150 A.D. Um, But for a while, all those predating the 9th century were lost. So the vast majority of Greek manuscripts are found between the 9th and 15th century. And then that was compiled and made into the Greek texts of Baza, Erasmus, and Stephanus. And then, that is what our King James Bible was translated from. Again, there's different terms used. There's, it's called the traditional text. It's called the majority text because of the quantity of how many there are. It's called the received text because it's used by the churches. Textus Receptus, meaning the same thing. And the ocean text because of the location um, where... The family tree basically stems from of the manuscripts, the Syrian text, because that 's part of Antioch, thats Syria being the country, um, the Byzantine text, that 's the Empire, and the preserved text. And so then the testus Receptus is a collaboration of the, the traditional manuscripts in a printed edition. The critical text. This is a different set of manuscripts, and we're going to talk about these. But this was a minority text. Um, basically, it's two to, basically three manuscripts, but they have found about 55 of them. Um, so it's a minority, whereas with the received text, there's over 5,000. But it's called minority text, because of, there's not very many. The Alexandrian text, because of the location, them being, um, traced back to Alexandria, Egypt, so the, called Egyptian text. The Westcott and Hort text, we'll talk about that in a different week. But basically, they did what Erasmus and Stephanus did, but with the other manuscripts. They used those manuscripts and made their critical text, and then came out the revised version that was translated. They've, a lot, there was a lot of... Um, controversy with Westcott and Hort in this day. So they've kind of reproduced the Nestle and Allen text um, and the UBS, United Bible Society text, but it's basically identical to the Westcott and Hort text. It's just trying to get away from the name. John Bergen was one day in, in the 18, or late 1800s were like, you know what, let's make an update to the King James Bible. Let's just update the language to a little bit more modern English. But then under a vow of secrecy, the translators with Westcott and Hort said, okay, you know, we're not going to tell people about this, but we're going to use these manuscripts instead. And there was a vow of secrecy. John Bergen was part of that committee and exposed it, along with some other people. Like, no, we're not going to be a part of this. We're not trying to make a whole new translation. We're just trying to update some of the archaic language. And he opposed Westcott and Hort and what they were doing. And then about the receive text. He says, call the text Erasmian or Complutinusian, the text of Stevens or Abaza or of the Elzevers. Call it the receive or the traditional or by whatever name you please, the fact remains that a text has come down to us which is attested by a general consensus of ancient copies, ancient fathers, and ancient versions. So then we have the discovery of new Greek manuscripts. The Vaticanus manuscript was found in the Pope's library um, at the Vatican in Rome in 1481 A.D., but because the papal opposition, the pope opposing it, it was not made completely accessible until um, 1890. You know, they, they allowed some to be um, assess it beforehand. You know, at Westcott and Hort, they end up being able to look at copies of it and stuff. But it's dated to around 340 A.D., And this was written on expensive vellum, on calfskin. And remember, before we didn't really have many manuscripts before the 9th century. But these ones are well preserved because what they were written on, and because they were hidden in the Vatican. Its readings were known to Erasmus, but he rejected them because they differed so much with the readings of the majority of the manuscripts. It contains most of the Old Testament except Genesis 1 1 to 46, parts of 2 Kings, some of the Psalms, and lacks um, large portions of the New Testament, such as Matthew 3, the pastoral epistles. And you know what? There's probably a reason for that. You know what? The pastoral epistles, one talks about, okay, a bishop being the husband of one wife. Well, the Catholic Church taught that the Pope and the priests are not to be married. And Timothy says, to teach that one cannot get married is the doctrine of devils. So why would they have it part of their manuscripts if it goes against their teachings? Like Hebrews 9.14 to 13 to 25. Now what's interesting there, it talks about how once and for all, Jesus is offered as a sacrifice. That the priests, yeah, they're offering a daily sacrifice for an atonement. But it says they can never wash away sins. Well, the Catholic Church taught that the priests had power to forgive sins. So they just don't have this part of their Bible at at the time. When a book would end in the Vaticanus... um, It would, okay, this is James and 1 Peter up here. So we see James going down, and then it's signed, and then it's blank. And then all of a sudden, 1 Peter starts. That is how it's written here. And so the next book would appear after a blank spot. In Mark 16, we see, okay, it goes down, and then it's blank. It's missing. Where is Luke chapter 1? You know what? Consistently, the next book starts in the next column. But you know what? The Vaticanus omits Mark 16, 9-12. That's where sometimes you'll find in your study notes, if you have a study Bible that favors the Vaticanus text, they'll say the oldest and the best manuscripts don't have the last 12 verses of Mark. It's their opinion that it's the best. And, and, and so modern versions, study Bibles, they'll, they'll say the last 12 verses of Mark are not authentic. Well, at least 618. This is when John Bergen wrote, so it could be more now. But when he wrote in the eight, late 1800s, that 618 Greek manuscripts had the last 12 verses of Mark. It was um, two that did not have it. The Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. A couple also have a different, shorter meaning. So 99% of Greek manuscripts have the last 12 verses of Mark in it. But in Some of the study Bibles will say, oh, we don't think this is part of the Bible. You know, you look in the Scripture, it was in Genesis when Satan said, yea, have God said to cause doubt, to question what is to be part of God's Word. So, you know, the majority of ancient translations contain the last 12 verses. The Latin Syriac, the Gothic, most of the Georgian, the Coptic, and others contain the last 12 verses. In translations during the Reformation period, German, French, Spanish, and English contain it. Several Christian writings stated earlier, 2nd century, quote portions of the last 12 verses. And it would be an awkward and unnatural stop for the text to end after verse 8. The book would end on a note of fear and not sharing the good news, no appearance of the resurrected Christ, No victory, no great commission, no ascension to heaven, and no preaching of the gospel with signs confirming the word to end, um, to remove those 12 verses. And it appears that the Vaticanus is kind of giving a, a silent witness that it really does belong there. Because they left it blank. Luke did not start in it. Another... Greek manuscript, part of critical text. It's the, uh, the Sinaiticus. This was discovered by Tischendorf um, at the Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai in 1844 AD. This manuscript was among rubbish. They were um, throwing it into the stoves. They were um, burning it to keep the place warm as well as to bake bread. That's what they were using this manuscript for. Tischendorf comes in and sees and says, like, hey, hold on. You know what? You know what? Could I have copies of this? And then all of a sudden they're, they're like, someone wants this? And then they wouldn't give it to them at first. And but all of a sudden they kept the rest. They're like, okay, there might be some value to it. But before they considered it rubbish, that it was garbage. Through negotiation, for later years, Tischendorf was able to purchase some copies of the Sinaiticus. And um, that's the picture of it. It's also dated around 340 A.D. On many occasions, 10, 20, 30, 40 words are completely dropped through carelessness. Letters and words and even whole sentences are frequently written twice over or begun, and then immediately cancel. The origin of these manuscripts, it's not from Antioch, these two, but from Alexandria, Egypt. You know, in history, Egypt despised the true God and afflicted God's people. Egypt is often pictured as a type of the world, and idolatrous. No original autographs of the Old or New Testament are known to have ever belonged to this region. And both the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus are traced from Alexandria, Egypt. The Greek manuscripts that support the modern versions we have today are called Alexandrian because they came from Alexandria, Egypt. A school was established in about 180 A.D., ...in Alexandria, Egypt. And it mixed Christianity with pagan philosophy. Now, while Antioch, their philosophy, their school of thought was... Well, let fault read the Bible literally. This philosophy of these people here was speculative... Um, ...philosophical, allegorical in its interpretation of Scripture... This method was to look for hidden, deeper, and mystical meanings in the text. Um, One man said this, It is to be noticed that all the manuscripts listed above come from Egypt. The Papyra, Sinaiticus, B. Vaticanus. We owe the early Egyptian Christians an immense debt. Okay, so that was his viewpoint. But this is an acknowledgement that these manuscripts come from Egypt. Well, you know and Just shortly after the, the disciples, even in their day, but shortly after, you had all kinds of different heretics. Um, we don't got time to get you all of them, but there's Markian, um, Valentinus, Tatian, Mains, um, known to be heretics. Um, Markian, for example, his theology rejected the deity um, described in the Hebrew Scriptures. He thought the Old Testament God is not the same God of the New Testament. And that, And the early Christian leaders denounced him. They called him a heretic. He published his own list of New Testament books and said, this is part of the Bible, but I don't like this. He edited the Bible. He edited Luke. He took out the parts he didn't like. He added things that he did like. And and he believed that Jesus' body was only an imitation um, of a material body. And denied that Jesus was physically born. And that he physically died. That he just appeared to die. He was agnostic. Um, is what they called it. And so early on in, the, in, in society. There was the corruption of the manuscripts. Of the text. You had these heretics. The Apostle Paul says. For we are not as many. which corrupt the word of God. So even before the Bible was completely finished, Paul says there are many that corrupt the Word of God. They corrupt it. Sometimes it was a willful mutilation of Scripture. Markian, he willfully edited it, changed it, deleted things. Sometimes it was editorial corrections of Scripture. They just thought, you know what, I think this probably would. It should say this instead. They would read something in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament they would go, you know, we're going to make it say this instead of this, that we think that somehow there might have been a copyist error. And so they would make a correction. But with the rise of false doctrine, heretical cults, many openly perverted the Scriptures to suit their teachings. Okay, You have the Mormons, they come out of the Book of Mormon. So they have their teachings. The Jehovah Witnesses, they come out with their own translation, the New World Translation, to suit their teachings. And you know what? Their Bible is based on the Alexandrian text. So it's the NIV, the ESV, follows the same text that the Jehovah Witness Bible um, follow. Um, And so great corruptions came by pens of scribes who acted as editors, rather than copyists. These men took it upon themselves to alter the text where they thought it was required to change to make it easier to understand. Frederick Schimner of 1813-1891 said, The worst corruptions to which the New Testament has ever been subjected originated within a hundred years after it was composed. Then you know what? already, early on, there was... Irenaeus, an early Christian, 150 AD. You know, he says, "Marcian and his followers have betaken themselves to mutilating the Scriptures, not acknowledging some books at all, curtailing the Gospel according to Luke and the Epistles of Paul. They assert that these alone are authentic, which they themselves have shortened. That they've shortened it. You know, there's two thoughts also that of Bible scholars." You know what? Some believe the longer reading should be preferred, and some believe the shorter reading should be preferred. They say the longer reading, which is usually the traditional text, would be, they say it's longer because scribes made additions. But we see an early testimony that rather what was happening, the scriptures were being made shorter. Tertullian said. Not being Christians, they have acquired no right to the Christian scriptures. It may be fairly said to you, who are you? Whence and where do you come? As you are none of mine, what have you to do with that which is mine? Indeed, Markian, by what right do you hew my wood? By whose permission, Valentinius, are you diverting the streams of my fountain? By what power, Apelles, are you removing my landmarks? This is my property. I have long possessed it. I possess it before you. I hold sure title deeds from the original owners themselves, to whom the estate belong. I am the heir of the apostles, just as they carefully prepared their last will and testament and committed it to a trust. Even so, do I hold it. Now you know what? Polycar- Polycarp was the disciple of the apostle John. Tertullian was the disciple of Polycarp. And he's saying, you know what, we got the text, the manuscripts, from the apostles themselves. And he says, you know what, we don't want this other guy messing it. Clement led the school in Alexandria from 190 to 202 A.D. And he intermingled Christianity and paganism. He's one of the fathers of the teaching of purgatory. Nowhere is it found in the Bible but they invented this thought of purgatory that, okay, your, your child or your, your parents aren't in hell, but they're in purgatory, and you need to pay indulgences to, so you could wash away their sins. He taught that. The Bible doesn't teach that. You know, here's earth, there's heaven, and there's hell. There's no in-between place that the Bible teaches. Origin. He led the school following Clement. Now, Origen, according to some scholars, they'll praise him. You know, in the homeschool community, they'll praise him as a great church father. Um, But he denied the perfect inspiration of Scripture. He taught baptismal regeneration, that one needed to get baptized to be saved. He believed in purgatory. He believed that the Holy Spirit was a created being. He believed that even Satan would be saved. And so he served as the president of the Alexandrian Catechal School. Um, He believed in the pre-existence of souls. He believed stars and planets have souls. He believed Jesus was created, not eternal. He spiritualized the Bible. He said the scriptures have little use to those who understand them literally. He denied the Genesis account of Adam and Eve. He taught that the bishop and priest had power to forgive sins. He denied the actual physical resurrection. He wrote over 6,000 books in his lifetime. That's why he has so much influence, even today, because offers, they're seen is an authority. He wrote commentaries on almost every book of the Bible. His crowning work was the Hexapla, a six-column Old Testament. Column 1, Hebrew text, mostly identical to the Masoretic text. Then a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew. Another Greek version and another Greek version. And then his own work. And it is thought that this is possibly where the Septuagint actually comes from. Some think the Septuagint was written before and he was quoting from that. But there's a lot of mystery about the Septuagint, which is supposedly a Greek translation of the Hebrew. But um, there's a lot of mystery. They say that 70, the legend is that 70 men made their own translation and then they compared them and it was all identical. All 70 of them put it together. And so it's thought possibly that really the Septuagint was written by Origen. But there's so much mystery, so much confusion about that. It's hard to know for sure. And in another Greek version, his fifth column um, is found today also in the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. The Vaticanus Sinaiticus has both the Hebrew and the Greek, and and that's where his reading or is the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus same reading. And then it, re- he re- it remained um, in Caesarea for a while until it was destroyed or lost during the Muslim invasion. Robert Damney said this, Those who are best acquainted with the history of Christian opinion know best that Origen was the great corrupter and the source or at least earliest channel of nearly all the speculative errors was plagued the church in after ages. He was a Presbyterian minister in the 1800s. Origen would take liberties to alter the New Testament text to say what he thought it should say. According to John Bergen, Origen inserted Isaiah into Mark 1 2 on the basis that the quotation is from Isaiah. Okay, Mark um, 1 2. In the three in the revised version of 1881. Okay, he did a translation of it. Okay, so he didn't write the revised version, but he wrote, um, wrote the compiled, wrote the text in the um, Hebrew and the Greek. But the translation from his manuscript says, "Even as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet: Behold, I send my messenger before thy face." Who shall prepare thy way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness? Make ye ready for the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. However, verse 2 quotes Malachi, and verse 3 quotes Isaiah. You know, it's in the King James, so we see it translated. It says, it's written in the prophets, plural, not Isaiah, but prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make the path straight. So Origen took his own liberties, knowing, okay, the first part, or, um, or part three, you know, it's in Isaiah, and must have assumed that verse 2 was from Isaiah 2. Well, no. It should have been left as the prophets. As it was written... We're not free to rewrite the text because of what we think it should say. Regarding origin, again, Robert Dabney, he said, the original corruptor of the text, he contributed to weaken the authority of the received text of the new. He appealed to the authority of Valentinus and Heraclean, which were heretics, while he thus raised the credit of these revisals which had been made by the heretics. He detracted from the authority of that text, which had been received by the orthodox. Those who are best acquainted with the history of Christian opinion know best that he was a great corrupter, and in the source or at least the earliest channel of nearly all the speculative errors which plagued the church in the after ages, he used to be Another guy, he collected the writings of Origen and promoted his false teachings. Constantine then ordered Eusebius to prepare 50 official Bibles on the finest vellum, on, on the calfskin. Robert Damney of this says, Whatever proof it that Origen and his school deteriorated the correctness of the text, it is to the same extent clear that Eusebius accepted and perpetuated that injury. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are likely two of these Greek Bibles. A.T. Robertson, um, a Baptist minister and scholar in the 1800s, early 1900s, he goes, it's quite possible that Aleph and B are two of these 50. Stemming from men that changed the text. Jerome's Latin Vulgate. He started as a reviser. He finished as a translator. His works are written on expensive vellum. Now, this is not to be considered with the old Latin Vulgate, which was done in 157 A.D., and that's one that early Christians used. But then Jerome made a new Latin Vulgate. Vulgate meaning common and stuff. The old Latin Vulgate, not Jerome's, okay, was used by the Christians in the churches of the Waldenses, Gauls, Celts, Albigenses, and other fundamental groups throughout Europe. This Latin version became so used and beloved by Orthodox Christians. It was so esteemed for his faithfulness to the deity of Christ and his accurate reproductions of the originals that these early Christians like Jerome's Roman Catholic translation sit on the shelf. Jerome's translation was not used by the true biblical Christians for almost a millennium. And Jerome complained that Christians would not use his translation. Even at first... The Catholic Church rejected it until really the eighth century. So, why are most traditional text manuscripts of a late origin, the Byzantine text, the Textus Receptus? Well, it was done on papyrus, not fine vellum. Okay, so more wear and tear is it as it is in the te- that, 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 It's what the Christians use. Okay, remember the Alexandrian text, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus? The Vaticanus was stored as a treasure in the Vatican, not used. The Sinaiticus was stored at a monastery and it was about to be thrown in the garbage. They should have finished doing that. You know, we'd have a little less confusion today. But the text that the Christians use, it would wear out for use. If you use your Bible, you're going to wear your Bible out over time. And the scriptures, the true scriptures throughout history, were burned by the Roman Catholic Church. And we're going to talk about that more next week. That they would have Christians executed for translating the Bible. And so, if you have this big group, which is basically a world empire, okay, it's a religion, but they operated as a world empire, we're destroying your copies of scriptures. It's going to be harder to find ancient copies. But what some skeptics will like to point out is we're almost done here. They would say that the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus are older, so we should go with them. Well, the readings of the traditional text, the received text, though there weren't a lot of Greek manuscripts, which there since have been found one, one of 1 John. Okay, but um, the readings—the same readings—but in other languages were found. Um, you know, the majority of church fodder quotes. This early Christian—you know—it's the church fathers. Some of them were early Christians. Some of them were heretics. There's a the mixture, but they're all often called the church fathers. But the majority of the church father quotes are from the readings that match the traditional text, the texts, the Textus Receptus most lectionaries that were used by churches back then match the textus receptus we have older translations in whose readings agree with the textus receptus okay so you have the new testament originals you have the greek manuscripts copies of the originals predating the 9th century but most of those are lost But then you have the old Latin Bibles, the Gothic Bible, the old Syriac, Peshitta Bible, um, the Diocesan from 170 A.D., European Latin, the African Latin, Waldensian Bibles, Itala. They all match the Textus Receptus. Not the Alexandrian Text, not the Vaticanus, not the Sinaiticus. And so this is where we have also the vast majority of Greek manuscripts match what those other early versions said. So we know that the readings of them are actually even earlier than the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. And that's where we get the authorized King James Version. translated translate into English. Modern textual critics admit that the traditional text of the Reformation was the text in common use throughout history. But their mindset is... Let's reconstruct the text. Let's fix the text to match what we think the originals would have said. So their view is, God didn't preserve his word. Or that they need to put the pieces together. But God said he would preserve his word through all generations. The TR, Test Receptus, and its precursor, the Byzantine ecclesiastical text had maintained a position of dominance for as long as the millennium and a half when the mortal wound was inflicted by Westcott and Hort. So that's where he's acknowledging he's for the the modern text that was discovered in the 1800s and the backends in the 1500s. But he says Westcott and Hort, they made the mortal blow to the traditional text. Well, just because someone opposes it does not mean that the traditional test is at fault. They were admitted. That's the text that the early Christians used. Another in tradition to the Greek New Testament by Westcott and Hort. Here's what Westcott and Hort said. The fundamental test of the late ascent Greek manuscripts generally is beyond all question identical with the dominant Antiochian or Greek and Syrian text of the second half ...of the 4th century. The community of texts implies... ...on a genealogical grounds... ...a community of parent ...the Antiochian fathers... ...and the bulk of extant manuscripts written... ...from about 3 or 4 to 10 or 11 centuries later... ...must have had in the greater number... ...of extant variations... ...a common original... ...either contemporary with... ...or older than our oldest... ...extant manuscript. So he's saying the readings... They're either of the same age or older than the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. And they're the ones that promoted the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. So here we're going to be done. The Antiochian School of Theology, they get their Hebrew text from the Masoretic Hebrew text, the Greek text the Receptus, the Byzantine text. That's where the King James Version comes from. The readings are traced to Antioch where they were first called Christians. The Alexandrian School of Theology comes from fragments of the Alessias, the Septuagint, and the Masoretic Text. So both use the Masoretic Text, so there's not really a lot of controversy over the Old Testament. But the New Testament is where there's a the controversy. The Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and then Westcott and Horse edition of that. And from that, you have the Revised Version, the Revised Standard Version, the American Standard Version, the New World Translation, the New American Standard Bible, the New Living Translation, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the Messenger, almost all of these modern versions are based upon those manuscripts. The new versions are, the, are only supported by about 55 of over 5,000 manuscripts. Critics of the Bible claim that these 55 are better than those used by the out- translators of the authorized version. I don't believe this is so. Okay, we don't see that with looking at it. John Bergen will close with this last slide. He okay, says, Strange as it may appear, it is undeniably true that the whole of the controversy may be reduced to the following narrow issue. Does the truth of the text of Scripture Dwell with the vast multitude of copies, unseal and cursive. Okay, some of the earlier Greek uh, um, manuscripts were all capital. And they were all squished together. Like you didn't see words. You just saw it, it's a solid line. And then in later centuries, a transition to cursive. And, and, and that would be where there'd be more spaces. And it would be called menu school. And that transition was made early on. And so that's where he says, What are their unsealing cursive? Concerning which nothing is more remarkable than the marvelous agreement which subsists between them. Or is it rather to be supposed that the truth abides exclusively with a very little handful of manuscripts which at once differ from the great bulk of the witnesses and strange to say also amongst themselves. Take the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. They don't even agree with each other. They contradict each other in what the readings would be. But the received text, the text that the authorized King James Bible is based on, it's from the received text. The text that's been used throughout Christians all throughout history. You know what, there was a crown copyright, you know, in England, that they did not want the Bible to be altered, to be changed when they made the translation. And so that's a good reason for a copyright, so things don't change. But the other reason for a copyright is money. You have a new version you know what, open it to kind of preface the beginning, and they'll say something like, you know what, you only have permission to quote 200 verses at one time. Um, When you quote it, you have to put in parentheses, NIV. You know, they're basically claiming offership for it. The King James doesn't have that kind of copyright. Here in America, you are free to copy the King James. You're free to reproduce the Word of God. And you know what the Bible says? The Word of God is not bound. And it's not bound by a copyright. Now, a study Bible, its notes may be copyrighted, but the text of the King James, you're free to copy it. The New Versions, there's a limit. And you have to say, this many. And know, notice the new version is coming out all the time, regularly. We're going to deal with more specifics next week and then in the weeks to come. But anybody have any questions so far? Any questions? I know we covered a lot of material. That's why we rushed through the service. We're getting out around normal time. Maybe even a little bit earlier. But any questions? Lord Laura. Okay, well, for somebody, one that's not saved, okay, the Bible talks about, you said an early Christian, new Christian, but one that's not, not saved, the Bible says they're going to be spiritually discerned. They're going to have a hard time understanding when they don't have the Holy Spirit living within them. Now, is there a little bit uh, language, okay, these and thou's? You know, it could, it, could get, it takes getting used to, but that's actually more accurate to the Greek. In the Greek, they would when they would say "ku," they would have it to mean either singular or plural. And so, when it's translated into King James as "thee" or "thou," is singular. You know, what Jesus said to Nicodemus, "I say unto thee." Then he uses the word ye, which is plural, must be born again. He was speaking directly to Nicodemus, but he's saying to ye, plural, to everybody, that to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. Now, can the King James be just as accurate without the THs on the end? Sure. And you know what? There's been attempts. There's been the new King James. And, but the New King James is basically a hybrid. It mostly follows the received text, but in places, they'll follow the critical text. And, so, and then there's a new one called the Modern English Version. And it just came out pretty recently in the last couple of years. And I checked that out. I was like, you know what, we'll see if maybe that, maybe that's, maybe that one's better. Maybe it's a modern updating of the language and not changing of the word so much. But I looked it up, and it makes the same mistakes the New King James does. Um, one example, like okay, the New King James, and it would say is... Um, okay, the King James would say um, that, okay, Jesus took not on the nature of angels, but took on the seed of Abraham. That he became mankind. The New King James, and the modern English version says... Um, He did not give aid to angels, but he gave aid to mankind. Well, that kind of reduces that, you know what, Jesus actually became flesh. Sure, you'll find it in other verses that Jesus became flesh. But when you dilute it a little bit here and there, it gets diluted. And so it's better, you know what, like, you know what, okay, even with kids, you know what, sometimes it's good to have a dictionary. You know what, and then your vocabulary increases. And there's some... There's some words, you know, even in the New King James, that are harder to understand the King James. And so that kind of comparison's not fair because it could go back and forth. Like where the King James says the word rivers. You know, talking about a river of water. The New King James uses the word rivulets. And it's like, hey, what's a rivulet? Okay. So some words are harder to understand. But so, it, yes, it will take getting used to understanding. But you know what, everyone in, okay, Shakespeare, they call it the Shakespearean language, okay? Um, but even in the Bible days, they did not always talk like that. Like it was closer to like that, but the Bible was written in a, in a style that's a little bit even different than just the common language in the sense that, you know, it's the Word of God. It's going to be majestic. And so, yeah, would I rather someone be reading a new version and looking at pornography? Absolutely. You know what? They still contain the Word of God, but the Bible does warn so much about not changing the Word of God. And when you have, say, in the NIV, um, that it it takes verses completely out. There's 17 verses completely omitted. And the reason is because they're not in the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. But they are in the traditional text. And so I think it's more important to have a more pure word and just take the time to learn it, to understand it. Any other questions? All right, you guys are all ready to go, huh? Ready for lunch. All right, next week's I don't believe will be as long. I think this week is the longest. There may be another one that's close, but next week's should be a little bit quicker. But this kind of lays the foundation that when we start uncovering the differences, um, we're going to show some very drastic differences. Well, the reason why is because they come from a different manuscript source. Let's go ahead and pray and be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord, that you know there's much to chew on, I pray, Lord, that people will even take the time to maybe um, search the matter out um, on their own um, to um, see whether these things are so. And um, we just thank you, though, for your word that you have promised you would preserve your word for all generations. And we thank you that we have a copy of it. That your word was even around in the dark ages, but it was scarce. And people gave their life to translate it into our language. In Jesus' name, amen.